you would be turning in your Bibles to John chapter 1, <clears throat> we'll begin our Advent series in verses 1 through 3. Uh, many of you have asked how our time away was, uh, and I said, you, you'll know how good it was if I'm done by 12.30 or 1. So I'm just kidding. It'll be sooner than that. No, we had a great time away. Thank you for those of you who prayed for us uh, and who respected that time away. I do appreciate that. Uh, and for those who have checked on us, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. The weather couldn't have been better. Uh, there's more of me now than there was when I left. And so um, I was soliciting turkey legs on the way in, and no one had any. So, um, all right, so let's, uh, let's focus on John 1 this morning. Um, it's a great question for us to begin. Where does the Advent story actually begin? So often what we're trained to do is to, is to think really about the manger and to think about um, maybe even with Mary and to think about the Advent story beginning in a certain locale, uh, in a certain place. And the truth of the matter is the Advent story starts much, much sooner than that. That God had always intended for Christ to come and to reign in that which he had created. We do need to understand that Jesus is not plan B. Now, the wrinkle in that is the necessity for redemption. The necessity that the fall did the damage that it did do to all of the created order. But, but God's intent was always, always to dwell with and be with his people. And what an amazing thing that he, he made sure that that was going to happen. That's how much he loves us. And I think that's very important for us to remember during this season that the Advent story really starts in a place called eternity past. It starts at the very beginning. And that's really where John starts, which is such an amazing place for, for us to begin. And, and so that, what that means is that God's intent has never changed. His love for us has never wavered. And that's an amazing thing to me. And so uh, Charles Simeon, I think, captures this well when he says these words. He says, What astonishing majesty and dignity are displayed in these brief but comprehensive words. He's talking about John 1, 1 through 3. The other evangelists commence their histories at the period of our Savior's incarnation. But St. John carries us back to eternity itself and informs us not only what Christ did and suffered, but exactly who he was. And so John's gospel is going to focus on the divinity of Christ first and foremost and why that's important to us. Coming out of the series on Colossians where we talk so much about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, uh, this is key. If Jesus is not God, then there's no way that he is supreme and there's no way that he would be a sufficient enough savior to save us. And that's critical. You'll have people who say, you know, Jesus never said he was God. I, yeah, actually he did quite a bit. And do remember that the reason that the Jews wanted him dead was because of blasphemy. Well, what is blasphemy? The blasphemy that Jesus committed was that he said he was God. And he said it in a bunch of different ways, which we'll get to this morning as we'll take a look at Exodus 34, 6 and 7, and then how Christ actually fulfills those things. And you'll notice that the religious leaders get particularly angry whenever he quotes uh, or uh, associates something from Exodus 34, 6, and 7 with himself, particularly the forgiveness of sins, which is interesting, that they would not want that to be a thing. And so as we step into this this morning, let us recognize, and with great humility, that there is still some mystery to this. There is no way I'm going to satisfy how Jesus is 100% God and 100% man because there's no such thing as simple math. It is supernatural and it is mysterious, 
And as I often say, but I am so glad it's true because of the effects that it has upon us. It means that we can be saved. Amen? All right, so if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word this morning, this is John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, there's some very interesting things that we could miss straight away. John begins uh, his gospel in the same way that Genesis begins, and there's a reason that he's doing that. He's uh, taking us all the way back to the beginning, to eternity past, as, we, uh, as it is sometimes referred to, and saying that from the very beginning, Jesus was there. Now, there's something interesting that you should note is that Jesus' name is not mentioned at all here. In fact, Jesus doesn't get mentioned until later in chapter 1, but we know that's who he's talking about, and it really is a a rhetorical and literary device that John is using, and it shows great um, just giftedness on his part because it it makes us draw closer to the text and say, he who? Who's he talking about here? And the text reveals later on as an unfolding mystery, just as the redemptive story is the unfolding mystery. And so what we have here is that in the beginning, just as at creation, that Jesus was there. Now he uses this term word, which is the way it's translated here. The Greek term is logos, and there are enormous reams of paper written about this one word. Um, and, and many people uh, interpret it differently. Calvin uh, interpreted it as speech. He says, uh, in the beginning was speech, and the speech was with God, and the speech was God. And other people have tried to capture it because word, uh, for, for us in our culture, tends to make it seem almost a bit passive. But, but really, for us, what, what we should understand about logos is that what it, what it means is the fullness of the attributes of God on display. That's the simplest way that we should be able to understand it, that, that there's, no, there's no just speaking about it. There's no just word. It's word and deed. It must, it must be displayed. It must be incarnated. For those of you who are familiar with the name Marshall McLuhan, he was a media ecologist who wrote uh, a prophetically back in the 60s about where media would go. And he's famous for this, this, term, this phrase that you may have heard, the medium is the message. And so, so there are those who have said that all he was really saying is the word became flesh. That in essence, that, that the word of God, that, that what God says he is, is meaningless without tangible, consistent incarnation. And that is what Christ is. Christ is the very attributes, the very personality, the very person of God made flesh on display, consistently lived out, which is very powerful for us. And there's something being said to us as well if we are being transformed into his image. And so just to highlight this, if you would, if you have a Bible, uh, flip to Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And this, if there is no other passage that you memorize in all of Scripture, if there's no other passage that you don't get your kids to memorize, it needs to be this one. Uh, among some others, uh, but, but this one is so powerful because, and we've preached on this before, this is God's confessional declaration of himself. Now, the scene is that Moses is asked to see his glory, 
And what God ends up giving him is a confession. He sees the backside, but what he does reveal to Moses is, in fact, his glory. And that is who he is. And so listen to what he says, and then I want to walk through and just give a couple of examples how Christ actually fulfills these things in his incarnation. The Lord passed before him, being Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, we've preached on this before, and I don't have time to unpack all of it. Um, Probably most troubling to some of you is the idea that sin would be visited upon the children. That gets dealt with later in the Old Testament in Ezekiel, where he says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and that the sins of the children are not, the sins of the father are not applied to the children in the sense of judgment. But what he is saying here is that your sin, our sin, my sin, has an impact on our kids and that it will it will eventually stop that's the good news that's why he says he he gives grace and mercy and forgiveness to thousands so this kind of myriad and ongoing but the effects of sin will only make it to the third or the fourth generation how good is our God that he says to these things you will not dominate a bloodline you will not dominate a family forever That's good news to us who sometimes feel like we are under the weight of the curse and the brokenness of our own families, right? And so Jesus lives these things out. Let's just begin with merciful and gracious. We can't help but think about Peter and how boldly Peter proclaimed that he, even if the other disciples would fall away, he he would die with Jesus. And remember what Jesus said to him. He said, he said, that's that's great, Peter. Actually, you know what? Get behind me, Satan. Because you don't know what you're talking about. You can't deny prophecy and you can't deny what I've come to do. In fact, you're going to deny me before the cock crows three times. You're going to give up before your life is really even in danger. Because if you know anything about the story of Peter, remember how he gave up. It was a servant girl who said, wait a minute. You sound like a Galilean. And remember, he cursed to try to throw her off. His life actually wasn't in imminent danger. He was just being pressed. He gave up Christ so quickly. And yet, the beauty of our Savior is, he, Savior is after he's resurrected, G, Jesus encounters Peter and he restores him. If you remember, he says, Peter, do you love me? And he restores him. That is merciful and gracious because, again, I don't know that any of us have the capability, given our own history, to deny Christ in the unique way in which Peter did. If anybody doesn't deserve heaven, it would be the one who would would make such bold and arrogant claims and deny. And yet, Christ our Savior, being merciful and gracious, restores him so beautifully. It goes on to say that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Think about this scene in John 8 when the, the, the Pharisees find the woman caught in the act of adultery and they claim that they are so concerned about the law. Well, where was the man? Thus begins kind of our misogynistic religious rule, right? And so they, they're not worried about the law because the law said they should both die. 
but he doesn't even get dealt with. They just drag her out, and she more than likely was nude, uh, uncovered. And if she was, she had very little to cover her. Think about that for a second. She's thrown into the middle of a group of men, and remember what Jesus was doing. Again, reams of paper have been wasted on whatever it was he was writing in the sand. The answer is nobody knows because we weren't there. But he's, he's just kind of patiently writing in the sand, and at some point, he, gets, he grows tired of the horns of the dilemma on which they're trying to catch him. And he says, <clears throat> uh, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they walk away, right? Which is fascinating. The oldest got it. They were plenty, uh, knew plenty of their own sin and knew they could not cast the stone. In fact, Jesus was the only one who could cast the stone and doesn't. And he turns to her and says, does anyone condemn you? She says, no. He says, and neither do I, who actually have the power to condemn you. Go and sin no more. How beautiful is our Savior to reflect this aspect of the Lord our God confessed, Nexus 34. And it goes on, and he says, he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands Think of all of the people who, who Jesus went to the cross for, all of the people that he encountered in his earthly ministry, people that we wouldn't necessarily think would be great church members or people that we would even pay attention to much at all because they don't look like us and they maybe don't smell like us and they maybe don't think like us and they maybe don't look like us, but, but yet he, he was always on the lookout. In fact, he even went out of his way, may I remind you, for a Samaritan woman whom he was incredibly patient with, as she lied to him, if, if you remember, right? He says, um, how many husbands do you have? And she says, um, none. He says, you've answered correctly. You actually have five. You have a lot. And I see the darkness of your soul, and I offer you living water. And so in this way, I, our God is displayed in the person and work of Christ. Think about the time when he got in the most trouble when the guys cut through the, the thatched roof and lower down their paralyzed friend and he heals him. Or, he, or he, he actually says, first, you are forgiven of your sins. And people go crazy. They get angry. He goes, which is harder? Tell a man he can get up and walk or forgive him of his sins. Now get up and walk. Restoring all things. That was Jesus declaring, I am. I am God. And so we see from this declaration of God himself that Jesus was displaying these things. He was the logos, the word made flesh, uh, who, who displays fully and beautifully the attributes of the Lord our God. And so when we read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, we see very clearly there a declaration of the divinity of Christ. Now, our, some of our friends, uh, I, I call them friends because I think they are genuinely trying to get at something, but our Jehovah's Witness friends try to do all kind of exegetical gymnastics with this, and I don't, I don't understand it. They're, they're actually modern-day Arians. The very creed that we read uh, would push hard against them. And I don't know why they want to do so much work to come out from under the one who could actually save them. But we all do, don't we? And so here, here Jesus is God, and it says, In all things, 
He was the, in the beginning with God. Again, John is, anytime something's repeated, that's very important to us to recognize that Jesus is plan A. And that he made all things. Again, we've talked about this in here before. Um, who could better know us than the one who created us and knows every fiber of our being? Who is better to say to us, that is not good for you? is not good for you. In fact, we know. Think about just, just our sexuality. Again, we think that, that we have this idea that it's only about negation, what God robs us of. Wendell Berry has a great way of, of, of viewing it. He says, actually, the rules of, of our sexuality, as far as Scripture is concerned, is not to rob us of anything good, but to actually protect our abundance. So that when we do have the opportunity to express it rightly, we are not robbed of all that is good. Amen? And so, uh, the, the, the things that we know from neuroscience, that the first person that a woman ever has sexual contact with of any significance is imprinted upon her brain neurologically forever. Well, in this life, not forever. That's actually a bad theological statement. In this life, not forever, which is good news. And for men, we know that, that once he gets engaged sexually, and his brain is rewired too. This is neuroscience. In fact, Time Magazine came out with an article not long ago um, uh, just talking all about the neuroscience of the things that we look at on the internet and how it changes us, and how it's actually robbing us of our ability to relate to one another. The very thing that Wendell Berry said, we're actually losing out on the great abundance that God intended with all of the distortions. And we, the church, don't even talk about it. Some of you are nervous right now thinking, oh man, what's he going to say? I don't know yet. Uh, <laughs> that's not entirely true. But God who designed us, Jesus who was part of that designing, who was not created himself, what, a better, what better Savior is coming than him who understands all of those things? For he made you, he participated in that, and he comes to display all of the fullness of the attributes and the goodness of God so that we could behold God's glory in this life and be drawn to him. Unless we think that we have no part in that, we have to remember, whose image is it that you're being transformed into? Well, that's a great question because the answer is not automatic. The question is, what are you engaging in that is transforming you? Because you are being shaped. The music that you listen to shapes your ideology. It shapes you. My wife can tell uh, for those of you who know the band Pedro the Lion and Dave Bazan, who's post-Christian and dark and awful, she can tell when I've been listening to Dave Bazan because I come in in a certain way, right? And, and so it shapes us. We have, to, we have to understand that. Many of you, your ethics have been shaped by sitcoms. Think about that for a second. That how you interact with the world has been shaped by a laugh track. Not a, it's not good. We need to be cognizant of the things that we are taking in and how they're shaping us. Now, did I just say that you cannot watch sitcoms? No, but do so with eyes wide open. 
recognizing what it is doing in you and the message that they are trying to come across. And that's the same, I don't care if it's sitcoms, Stranger Things 2, spoiler alert, I'm fixing to ruin it for everybody, I'm kidding. Uh, I don't care what you watch, it is shaping you in some way, shape, or form. Remember, nothing is neutral. And so we are to be being transformed into the very image of Christ, which since God is in all of the world, we have the great liberty to enjoy his creation and to enjoy created things. Better that we spend our time on things that matter. Because if we're being transformed to the image, that very logos, that very display of the attributes of God is supposed to be true of us too, you realize. You should be able to be described by the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Did I get it? What's that? Faithfulness. Theologian Kimberly Barham is with us this morning. (laughs) She's been quoted before. Um, and so, so faithfulness, right? I mean, that was one of the attributes of, of our God, very God, who is Jesus, who is very God. And so these things we ought know. And you ought to, uh, on a regular basis, you and your family, pause and, and take stock of how you are seeing these attributes of God in one another and in the world, and those things are shaping and, and, and changing you. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I need to assess one more thing like I need a hole in the head. This all sounds hard. Yes, it is. I get it. But you make time for lots of interesting things, right? For my, for my volunteer fans. You're next, Tennessee. Uh, you know what that means. Right? So we've invested all these things in these things, and for what sometimes? It's fun, and I get it. And I watched the Alabama-Auburn game yesterday with no dog in the fight. Uh, and so it was awesome to see poor old Nick Saban suffer, but uh, I don't know why that matters to me. But, <laughs> um, but, but that, that shouldn't be what defines us. If we have time for those kinds of things, we must have time for cultivating and developing ourselves in the image of God. This is why we want our liturgy to be thick, so that if this is going to be the lion's share of what you get, we want it to be meaty. And you may say, but what about visitors? What about the visitor who comes and they don't know, what you're, they don't know about the Nicene Creed? Well, how are they going to learn? Churches, your home is for visitors, actually. You should be the front door, not the church. The church is intended to actually equip the saints for the work of the ministry and send out, not display the low shelf of things, but to actually break out the good stuff week after week after week. And so, so we are to actually display the very things that Christ came to display. And are we doing that? You know, as, as I read earlier from Charles Bridges, is the world looks at us, is all they see what religion takes away? Or is what they see in us the joy and the peace and, and the found, firm foundation that is built and the, the display of the goodness of God in and through us? What do they see? And you ought to ask them sometimes. My wife and I had a great interaction with uh, a couple. We, we've been going to this bed and breakfast in Dahlonega for, I think, the last nine years. And we've developed a relationship with the people who own the place. It's not really born any sort of discount, which is fine. Uh, we love the place and we love them and we want them to eat good too. Uh, and there's a couple that's been, uh, he's actually a cinema studies professor at, at a college here in Georgia. 
And we had a long conversation with them out on the porch. And, and I never know how those things kind of go because uh, we got into some deep water pretty quick. We talked politics and race and family. And, and, and so you guys are thinking, what? Let's keep it light, bro. Have you met me? I, can't, I don't know how. And so I, I just, I didn't know how the conversation went as they, they went off to dinner. And the next day, um, as we were leaving, he came out and, and they made it very clear. We are not, we are, we are post-Christian. We are not believers. We feel like religion is manipulative. We feel like it's, it's for, for really, really dumb people. And I was like, I was reading the Benedict option, which was awesome. Uh, and so uh, I was like, I'm a pastor. So yeah. And they're like, oh, fascinating. Got awkward for like 30 seconds. And so, um, but it was fine. I mean, and so, but what was really neat and very humbling is he, he heard us leaving and he found us and he gave me his card and he said, Hey man, if you're ever in the town that we live in, come see us and keep up with me. Let me know what you're reading. I'd love to hear kind of what you have going on. And he gave me his personal phone number and all this stuff. And I mean, he really made an an attempt. So I, I say that to say that, that we, uh, even on our vacation, had an opportunity to display the glory of God, and for them it was not noxious. They saw something that made them go, wait, religion is not all about what is taken away, but there's actually something of value put back. And so, are we those people? Is that what the world sees in us? Do they see this, the, that the incarnation matters? Do they see that it matters that Jesus is God? Do they see that it matters that Jesus, who is God, indwells us and is transforming us? What do they see? Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this passage. He says, Let us mark that the Savior in whom the believer is bid to trust is nothing less than the eternal God, one able to save to the uttermost all that comes to the Father by him, He that was with God and was God is also Emmanuel, God with us. Let us thank God that our help is laid on one that is that mighty. So what does it matter to us that Jesus is God? Everything. Everything. The whole of it stands or falls on this idea right here. To think that there is a person who could ever be good enough to save you. I mean, is there anybody in here who hasn't been let down by somebody at current? I see no hands. <laughs> um, I, I don't see that hand. Uh, and so, so we've all been let down. So none of us have been perfect, and none of us have kept this in, incredibly well, and, and, and we are going to fail one another, aren't we? But there is, there is one who has not. And you may have questions about that. You may say, yeah, but I, I prayed one time to Jesus. He, he didn't show up. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. That's, a, that's, that's a, a great question. You should talk to somebody about that that can kind of help walk you through that and, and lovingly help you to see that maybe, maybe he did show up and you weren't paying attention or that what you were looking for wasn't actually Jesus. It was something else. And so it matters to us so much that Jesus is God. And what does it matter to us that Jesus has tangibly and perfectly displayed the attributes and essence of God in this world? It matters because it gives us a picture of this invisible God. How hard is prayer? How, hard, how many of you are like, oh, it's super easy to talk to somebody you can't see and who doesn't talk back? That is so awesome. That, no. It's, it, prayer takes work, right? And yet what we have in Jesus 
is, is this display, this tangible incarnation. You may say, but I didn't see it. But this is where we get to see it in each other. This is where we get to see it in how the church works and does what it does. In our generosity and all the things that allow us to display these things. And what Jesus did is he displayed it in such a way so that we would know that who we are praying to is actually there and actually cares. That he is steadfast in love. He is merciful and gracious and that you don't have to run from him when you have failed. Actually, you get to run to him. And I can't tell you how important that one moment is. If you can get over that hill, that when you sin, you don't run and try to get yourself together before you can come back. That if you can get, you can come to the very throne of grace still in the filthy garment in which you have sinned. And what God will say to you is the same thing that the angel of the Lord said in Zechariah 3. He said, that is a firebrand I have plucked from the fire. Remove the filthy garment, hating even the flesh defiled by the garment, but, but may the man or woman remain. And be made new. What an incredible, incredible truth for us. That we get to come boldly before the throne of grace. Amen? That you don't have to run. So much of what we do is run, right? We run from. We avoid. We don't answer those phone calls. We don't answer those emails. We don't answer those text messages. We, we pull back from people as if they don't know what's going on. And as if they would love us any different if they did know. So what do we learn from John 1, 1 through 3? Well, we learn that Jesus eternally expresses the attributes and the essence of God as our divine Messiah. And what we learn is that really means something. And that is the most incredible truth in all of creation, that the Logos was Christ, that Christ fully displayed the person and personality of the Lord our God. And that, that this too actually matters to us. It matters to us because we now have the opportunity to display that in so many other places. Think about what Christ said when he was leaving. He said, look, I've done some pretty amazing things, but you guys, you will do greater than I will. Why? Because there's a lot more of us. Remember, Jesus spent the majority of his ministry in a one-by-one-mile square. He wasn't like teleporting to different places. Like he didn't teleport to New York to talk to Joseph Smith. He didn't teleport all these different places to do these different things. He did all of his ministry tangibly in a very small area and let it radiate out from there. In the people that were redeemed, in the church that was built of which he is the head. And so we, we have this phenomenal capital to work with. Are we using it at all? Do we get that we now are the ones who are filled with the Logos who are to display that imperfectly? Don't get me wrong. We will do so imperfectly. But that we are able to because of the person work of Christ, the finished work of Christ, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And you may say, but yeah, I don't feel any of that. Yeah, but feeling has never been the main part. So don't, don't hear me wrong when you say that feelings don't matter. I love it when you can sense the very presence of the Lord. I love those presbycostal moments. Like, uh, you know, it gets like, what am I? Am I, st- am I still qualified? Uh, and so I love all that. But the majority of our existence is not that. It's much more quotidian. It's much more day-to-day. And oftentimes, you recognize in retrospect, wait a minute, 
wait a minute, there was more going on there than I recognized. I had one of my um, uh, divine run-ins with my, my good brother Silas at Starbucks this morning, and it was just an incredible thing that the Lord continues to cross our paths uh, on, on a regular basis so that we can celebrate the goodness of God and God's common grace and, uh, and to have developed a friend who I didn't even know I had. As he says, he, we are brothers from another mother. And so, um, and, and so God just, and again, that's something we could easily overlook. God is so good to, to be present in all things. God is so good to display himself in so many things, but most uniquely, he displays himself in us through the personal work of Christ. What are you displaying? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you chose to display the fullness of your glory in a man, um, that man being Jesus, that you chose to display that divinity in, in a man who was perfect and who so loved us that he would say these words um, that may this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done, that he would endure the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him because he knew, he knew what it would purchase, which is us, that it, would, that it would bring us near to you, that it would allow us to dwell in your presence and to receive all that we need. The lavishness of the storehouses of heaven have been given over to us are we living in such a way that reflects the joy and the peace that only salvation in Christ can truly bring? Help us, your people, to display your glory in word and deed in this world. In Christ's name, amen.